Hey everybody, Chris Fafalius here. If you enjoy One Hit Thunder, which I'm assuming you do considering you're listening to it right now, I want to tell you about another great music podcast on the Evergreen Podcast Network. It's called Riffs on Riffs. On this season of Riffs on Riffs, hosts Toby Braswell and Joe Watson are breaking down one iconic pop song each week. Everything from Taylor Swift's Cruel Summer to Journey's Don't Stop Believin' to Naughty by Nature's OPP. Each week, they crack open the song, trace its history, decode those cryptic lyrics, and unearth the hidden gems in its musical DNA. Not only do they dive into the song's history, lyrics, and impact, they also go down some fun and oftentimes hilarious rabbit holes. So yeah, if you're a fan of One Hit Thunder, I think you'll also enjoy Riffs on Riffs. So go hit that subscribe button on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your pods. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. In 1984, the bizarre pseudo-hip-hop new wave song Somebody's Watching Me hit the radio waves and left a huge mark. Yes, it's possible that the chorus from Michael Jackson helped quite a bit, but still you couldn't help but want to know more about Rockwell and his bizarre rapping style. Chris isn't here this week, but you get myself, producer Matt, talking about Rockwell with Andrew Gower, the star of Monster Squad and the director of the upcoming documentary Wolfman's Got Nards, to discuss why the 80s was the only time something like Somebody's Watching Me could ever exist. One hit is all you need to make the money guaranteed and you can live off royalties forever and it makes me wonder is it just a wonder or is it one hit Happy Halloween from One Hit Thunder. Unfortunately, Chris is unable to be here, so you just get producer Matt, but that's fine because we have an exceptional guest this week. We are joined by Andre Gower, the star of Monster Squad and the director of Wolfman's Got Nards, the new documentary about Monster Squad. Oh, that's me. So I gave you a simple assignment. We do a podcast about one hit wonders. I said, we're going to do your episode the week of Halloween. Give us a spooky one hit wonder. And you came through with probably the most appropriate one hit wonder Halloween song to discuss while promoting a documentary that came out in 1987. Um, (laughs) That's sort of why it worked in there, you know, with with lists of suggestions by more than one source. And it came. Yeah, it, it ended up being perfect. It's somebody's watching me by Rockwell. I did a little bit of research on Rockwell, even listened to a few of his other songs. And I have kind of I know where I've landed with this song, but I want to know, do you have a personal attachment to this song at all? I do. And I think that's why it rose to the top of the list when you're thinking of 
you know, either spooky themed or horror. They're not about a horror themed. I guess you'd have to pick a song from a horror movie, but that seemed like cheating, you know, because it's just some rock song that they put on a soundtrack. So that's not really the, it's not really in the, in the spirit. And usually if they're reaching out to an artist, they, they have a hit already. That's, that's right. Yeah. Rockwell, it hits me personally because that's right in the era of not only MTV, but VH1, because VH1, before it was VH1 and owned by MTV, it was a local affiliate station in LA that we got. And Richard Blade from K Rock, who's like the, <laughs> the the morning or either the drive time DJ on K Rock, became the VJ on VH1. And they played a lot of the videos that MTV wouldn't play or didn't play. And so that's where we got a lot of the cool shit, like uh, new wave stuff and, and some of the. I don't want to say alternative, but alternative to top 40. You know, I I don't remember where this debuted on the video world, but the videos were huge. You saw the video sometimes before you heard the song, but Rockwell came out with the song and it was totally 80s, awesome camp cheese radness and had a fun video that was straight out of a Hitchcock museum. This song almost feels like it was written for the music video more than the music video was created for the song. You almost could look at it that way, yeah. Yeah, like yeah. They're, they're very tied together. I mean, I love this song. I think that this song is great. But my unpopular opinion is that I think that Rockwell is probably the the least impressive part of this song. I think that, you know, that you've got this awesome pipe organ synth sound just like driving this song. And then obviously the iconic chorus by Michael Jackson. And then Rockwell's just doing this weird, I don't even want to call it rapping because it's kind of just a almost like a monologue that he's giving. It's just it a is. very <laughs> weird thing. <laughs> and I wrote it down. I was like the very first time like the first bars, you know, that he that he says something, it, it's not that bad. But then he goes into this like this weird kind of. I think he saw a Vincent Price like advertisement. <laughs> when I'm alone at night, <laughs> you know, like what is happening here? I was like, you're like this cool slick dude that you know should be dancing around the house and you know, except for you're in the shower and you're in a towel, you know, be, being paranoid. <laughs> yeah, it was just kind of this weird thing. But I think that made it different and kind of made it cool. You know, and then as you get deeper, you know, it's like, oh, you know, oh, they even reference Psycho, uh, you know, it's it's in the shower and, you know, you know, the video is, like you said, almost synonymous with the song now. So you almost got to get the video out of your mind when you're just concentrating on the lyrics or something. But it was kind of a big hit. It wasn't just like a video thing. It was like a flash in the pan. Like this song played like oh, it was it, it was a thing. And was, you would think it would tied into something, but it was like a single on its own. So it's funny you should say that because the song actually ended up peaking at number two on the top 40. Uh, And during the time that it was up there, the only songs that were keeping it from that number one spot were Van Halen's Jump and Footloose by Kenny Loggins. We're constantly battling in that that first place, keeping it from getting to the top of the chart. And those two definitely should have kept it at number two. (laughs) Exactly. It's like number two on the chart is nothing to be ashamed about. That is an impressive feat that any musician on the planet will tell you is a dream come true. Absolutely. It's a huge accomplishment for any single. And if you're going to have one hit, you want it to peak at number two, because that's sort of a career. But did he need a career? I mean, he's coming. That's what everybody kind of gave a little bit of, I don't know, side glance. What were we, 
you know, 12, 13, like, like we gave a rip, but you know, it's like, Oh, it's easy. You know, he can make hits because he has, you know, access to all the great stuff. Cause he's very Gordy's son. So you're like, wait a minute, but that's rad. Who cares? Here's the thing. So I was doing a little bit of research on this. Supposedly from the information that I have, and this is where we can get into a pretty interesting conversation about this is that at the time Rockwell was not on speaking terms with his dad. It's not that his mom was married to Barry Gordy. It's just that his dad was Barry Gordy. But also, he tried to avoid nepotism by trying to get a record label without ever informing his dad. But the, the thing that this brings up to me, something like a Joe Hill. You know, Joe Hill is Stephen King's son, and he's made a career for himself without really you know, using his dad for connections. Right. Not trading on the name. But the flip side of that is like, I'm sure any person in the publishing industry knew who he was the second they met him. And I feel like that's kind of the same thing. It's like, yeah, you could try to get a record label and not use the fact that Barry Gordy's your dad, but you're working in an industry that he's a God in and people are going to know. Yeah, that's Barry Gordy's son. Right. So it's almost, it's almost a tough spot to be in. Because that third party that's considering giving you or not giving you a a record deal or, you know, put out a song, what if they're like, well, not that this does, I'm just speaking in hypotheticals, like, well, you know, this guy's not very talented and the song kind of sucks, but, you know, he's so-and-so's son, so do we want to poke that bear? And, you know, because the wrath that could come down from, you know, whatever is is devastating to us as a, as a label or, you know, and radio stations were definitely going to play it. But, you know, I, I still think it's catchy. It's fun. You have access to all the best musicians in the world. And, you know, there was a guy, you know, like you mentioned, that was you have access to Michael Jackson to do your chorus. I mean, you're, it's pretty good. Yeah. It's your childhood friend is Michael Jackson, who's like right, right now. This is the peak thriller at this point. Right. I think you mentioned the actual cool part because Michael Jackson didn't do this song because it was like part of a big record deal or part of the empire or part of the Motown or whatever. He did it because his buddy was making a song. Yeah. that And I didn't know this until I was doing some research, but also all the backup vocals are done by Jermaine Jackson in this song. Did he produce the song? I didn't, I didn't deep dive it because I don't because Jermaine, you know, they did a ton of stuff you know, that's, that's what he's, I don't know if he like even played the instruments or whatever, but Jermaine was like a prolific producer for a lot of people that you don't realize. Yeah. I'm sure he was involved. I didn't actually find yeah. that piece out to be totally honest. I, I don't, you know, it's like I said, it's, I don't know if it's a lot of it's out there, but yeah. And you know, and that's an interesting, you know, setup because you think it's all these iconic figures. And really what I like about it is even back in the day of maybe the, you know, peak of the machine. I don't know. Well, I don't know. Maybe the machine's always peaked, right? But the peak of the music industry machine, you know, then it was just a couple buddies that got together to make a song that ended up being a hit, which is cool. Yeah, no. And I, I like that element of it. Uh, this was something that I thought was funny was that Motown actually came up with the stage name Rockwell. Uh, his actual name is Kennedy Gordy, right. but they came up with the name Rockwell and he agreed to use it because he felt that he rocked quite well. There's a lot of things I'll say about this song, but I, I wouldn't describe it as a rock song. <laughs> um, it is it is firmly like a new wave hip hop song. If I was going to throw it into any genre, <laughs> probably. Yeah, I don't I don't even know where there's like a 
there's probably a few parallel songs like Falco and it had a very Euro feel to, you know, to it too. Like that's where your new wave comes in, but not, you know, not English new wave, but like Euro wave, like one night in Bangkok and, and, and stuff like that, where they're kind of mostly spoken word, but then still had some jam. I'd say there's even a little bit of like this era of Devo in there like just for how heavy that synth is and how weird the vocal delivery is like yeah and he you know with the accent and it like if he had distorted his voice it would have been like total deep now look i'm a you know devo's rad devo's incredible we've already done an episode on devo but i'll just say again on the record devo probably top five bands that do not deserve to be called one hit wonders i don't know how they think because they're not only prolific probably the wrong term because if you look at i've got their greatest hits on my phone and it's like <laughs> i don't know 400 songs or something and you know it's, it's a whole huge bunch of you know it's but there's like 30 members of devo when you see them on stage <laughs> and they're all playing stuff but it's it's so innovative and like i don't even think you'd have like beastie boys with rick rubin were influenced by devo and you know and stuff like that you know and even this time, like they were way ahead of their game. I think they influenced way more hits than they're credited for actually having on their own. But because I think people didn't understand Devo and it's like they're from another world right now. Tying it back into to not just Rockwell, but tying it back into like what we're talking about with why you're on the show. Like Devo was almost like avant-garde filmmakers making music and they even have like the short film the the history of de-evolution i believe it's called no they were avant. that's that's the perfect um that's the only way to describe them you know and sometimes avant-garde maybe it's a even a different category of maybe it's like the bleeding edge of avant-garde because once you're avant-garde you're already in a category so it means you're not like special <laughs> yeah <laughs> if you're avant-garde you're in a category <laughs> like Devo was never even in a category. They were just Devo. And it has influences. And I think you're right, especially with that synth and the and the mix and bringing the, you know, the R&B and the soul into it and a little bit of the hip hop because it's kind of rap, but it's rap with like a Vincent Price accent. So it's not like, you know, hardcore hip hop rap, but it's spoken. So it's kind of cool. It's like if someone took Vincent Price's part in Thriller and was like, you could make a full song on that. I, like, I think, like I said, I think he watched Thriller a ton and was like, who's that guy at the end? <laughs> so the other thing that we're talking about Devo and why Devo shouldn't have been a one hit wonder. And one of the biggest reasons is how innovative and unique they were. So I can't say the same for Rockwell digging into like what some of his other singles were. <laughs> Are you familiar with the other singles that Rockwell put out at all? Uh, n- name the next biggest one and I'll tell you if I am or not. The next biggest one, which shockingly reached 35 on the Billboard charts, technically not a true one hit wonder, but also no one knows the song, was Obscene Phone Call, which is- Oh, a- yes. Another another <laughs> corny, the video. Yes, I do remember the video. I remember the video. It is the exact same themes of somebody watching me just- Now they're just calling you. <laughs> yeah. And, and then his second, his second album, the lead single was called Peeping Tom. Is there a theme here? Like, is this projecting <laughs> somehow? Like, I don't, I don't know Kennedy Gordy, you know, personally, <laughs> but like there seems to be a theme and I hope there is not. I almost think like you were saying at that time, especially if you were this type of artist or had the access, 
you're not trying to write an album that you're going to go tour on. No, not at all. You're trying to write a song that's going to get some radio play and you really are, you're you're probably making the video first before you write the song. One of the things that I've learned while I've been analyzing these one hit wonders uh, along with Chris is like, there seems to be pocket moments in time where there's a ton of one hit wonders. And it's like the fifties was big for it. Like the late fifties, early sixties, the eighties was big for it. And then the post grunge era, I feel like we're like the three big hotbeds for one hit wonders. And I've kind of figured out the reasons why for every single one of them. I, I think, I think I know the theme. What's your, what's your, what's your figured it out theory. So with the fifties, it was that you weren't having anybody write their actual songs. So you had a group of roaming hit makers that were writing songs for like whatever new act, but like that was it. They would write, a song for a fifties group and then move on to the next fifties group to write a song for. So you might have this one songwriting team that has like 40 songs to their name, but it's spread out across 35 bands that maybe only two of them had a second hit. Right. You've got the nine, the post grunge nineties. My theory is after doing this, that Nirvana end it. And record labels just scrambled to sign anybody who could possibly be the next Nirvana and just kept pumping out singles and seeing what would happen. Right. And with the 80s, I think it was that there's this brand new world called MTV, and it's all about who looks the best and can they do a music video. Right. And the actual quality of the music kind of took a little bit of a dip, even though I love 80s music and I love that synthiness. There is a noticeable lack of like, like you had like your tears for fears that would write these really deep poetic lyrics, but then you have like somebody's watching me, <laughs> which is well, I think like schlocky camp. Exactly. <laughs> I think you're spot on in your different eras, but I think the over the umbrellaing of those three things are all the same. The Nirvana, the fifth, it's all the same. You had this explosion and per, I, I think the the songwriting teams, I think you're spot on because that that happens a lot. That happens a lot in country music. Like, you know, there's a handful of the top country music writers of all time that have like literally 100 number one hits or something spread out over 50 artists, like you were saying. And I think in the 50s, we had TV and radio got big. Rock and roll was new. And so they were just they were putting out so much stuff. That if you only had five bands or groups or singers in the 50s, you would have – each one of them would have 50 number one singles because they're the same songs like you were saying. But they were they were just throwing everything on the wall. Uh, it was like an arms race. You know, It was like a you know, proliferation of sound. And then same thing in the 80s because we we're going through the machine. But the 80s was jam-packed more than the 50s and the 90s because, yeah, you, you went all the way from you know deep – you know, even, you know, English New Wave or even stuff like Depeche and The Cure all the way to Rockwell. <laughs> and then you had great <laughs> stuff like Michael Michael Jackson, who was actually good songwriting and good, you know, music production and then great performances. But then you had, you know, Madonna, who was blazing a trail like, did she write her songs? No, some, maybe a little bit, but she was a, a huge force that created this own thing. But there was so much more in the 80s to choose from, and they were all battling for each other. And like you said, on the video, music video realm, in the 50s, you're trying to see who can get on Ed Sullivan. 
in yeah. the 80s, you're trying to see who's going to get on MTV. You had to look good and perform. Like, there's some great songs with cool bands, and they're terrible in their videos. And they're like, uh, <laughs> you guys can't act. You look really lame. So we're just going to do a concert video because that was like the bailout, right? But then you've got like cheesy, big production, like a, a tune that I love from the 80s. I don't know why. It's, it's like on my YouTube playlist because it's a catchy tune is uh, She's a Beauty by the Tubes. But the video that I can a carnival, like the song's a little creepy. Like when you actually listen to the song, you're like, uh, problematic today. But it's a catchy song. But like it, the, the guys are so bad. And the biggest example of this is when you put D. Snyder and his group in, we're not going to take it. And it's just like it's a four dudes structure. in spandex getting stuck in the hallway trying to get out yeah. of a kitchen and like the bass player is like so uncomfortable if people ever want to say that there's not a power music videos you just have to ask billy squire what he thinks about music videos <laughs> right. because talk about a dude who pre-music videos was just knocking it out of the park with these anthems of the yes. 70s and early 80s with like right. the stroke and everybody wants you and stuff like that yeah but then he shoots the music video for rock me tonight and his career is over it is one of the strangest worst campiest music videos but it's not selling who billy squire is <laughs> at all and yeah. it destroyed his entire career he never yeah. bounced back from that judy was boring hello then judy discovered jumbacasino.com it's my little escape now judy's the life of the party oh baby mama's bringing home the bacon whoa take it easy judy <laughs> The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hey, this is Steve Choi, host of the Musicians Guild podcast, part of the Sound Talent Media Podcast Network. Within the four walls of the Musicians Guild, we'll be discussing the habits, idiosyncrasies, experiences, and general psychology of my friends and peers all involved with music in various capacities. Listen and subscribe at SoundTalentMedia.com. Music became a visual medium. You can write that down because I was impressed. That's very profound of me. Um, <laughs> I, I think I'm the first person ever that. said it, but yeah, it's not. <laughs> if I am, then the world's in trouble. Um, but no, it's uh, – hang on. I'm going to pat myself on the back. I got to stretch. <laughs> it, it's so true though. Now, then look at the flip side of that where you had people that were made for videos. And their songs were great too, and it just flowed. And then you could get all these great innovative directors and creative designers to do shit. Like, I mean, Duran Duran is the top. I, I feel like the the flip side of that is that it all builds to when we eventually hit a Millie Vanilli. We got to fabricate something that has this. We're gonna we're gonna create movie stars, yeah, or you know, visual images out of thin air. Uh, but, you know, it's that was just probably the next progression of most people don't understand in music that when you listen into your favorite band, like, I don't know, what is it? At least half the time, the members of the band did not record the music for the album. That was one of the craziest things when I learned that a buddy of mine who was a studio musician. Yeah, those are the talent guys. And finding out that like 
all of these bands that I love. He's like, yeah, I was the drummer on that. And I was yeah. like, what? I know a few of those artists, you know, and even back in the day, like, you know, now, you know, they're called the hired guns. And I thought that documentary should have been better because uh, I really wanted it to be really informative and go way back. But, you know, you had these contracted studio musicians that were fantastic. And I think the best representation of that dynamic, we're going off on a, you know, another tangent here, but the wonders. Yes. When Ethan Embry's like not showing up and they're like, hey, this is Wolfman, <laughs> ironically, Wolfman, he's going to, you know, he's going to be your bassist. They're like, what? Does he even know this? Can he play bass? And he goes, blah, 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 and they go, uh, yeah, we're good. <laughs> so one other thing that I did not know, there is a band that was very, very popular not even a decade ago that was the son and grandson of Barry Gordy. Do you know what band that was? It's not it's not Little Rockwell, right? No, so LMAFO, the group that did like Sexy and oh, I Know It and yeah. Party Rock Anthem okay. is made up, I just found this out today and it blew my mind, is made okay. up of a son and a grandson of Barry Gordy. Well, that's pretty rad though. That, that, that's, honestly, that's not to make joke to about a lineage, but that's a giant lineage. So I want to ask you a question. This song came out in 1984. Now I was not alive yet, but you were. Uh, and yes. I I have what the five biggest hits were in 1984. And I'm curious if you can guess any of them. Born in the USA had not come. That was 85. That was a huge right. album. Then had like four huge hits on it. I mean, something's got to be Madonna. Shockingly, no. But I would say that the anti-Madonna is is definitely uh, one of the five. Anti-Madonna. Where would you... Re- I, I'm I'm referring to a Cindy Lauper and her song well, Girls that, Just Want to Have Fun. I was going I was going <laughs> da- I was going down the list and I was going to Cindy Lauper. You mean actually <laughs> someone who can write songs and is very good vocalist. Yes. Cindy Cindy Lauper. Yeah. So I would say that where Madonna was always kind of the the pop princess, yeah. Cindy Lauper was definitely the the amazing voice who was secretly all about punk rock and and yes. anarchy and insanity. <laughs> right, but then had to create a visual persona that set that stayed true to who she was, but then also set her apart visually. But she's carried that through. I mean, rocking it today. She's awesome. Is there any other uh female artists? There are no more female artists, but I will say two of the hits are sung by the same person but one when they were in a band and one when they went solo. Phil Collins? No. The singer died on Christmas a couple years ago. Give me the band. Wham, Wake Me Up Before You Go-Go oh, was one of the George top Michael. five. God, and then it. what do you think was the George Michael solo song that was actually the best-selling single of 1984? Was Faith out? No, I will say- Faith was not out. That was 86, One right? would say possibly the most iconic saxophone of all time. Careless Whisper? Yeah. Careless Whisper. Yeah, that was the number one single of 1984. Yeah, that makes sense. Okay. Stevie Wonder was still hanging out in the charts with I Just Called to Say I Love You. And then Frankie Goes to Hollywood. Relax. Relax? That was 84? If you if you had said, give me the year that Relax came out, I don't think I would have said before 86 for some reason. That's crazy. <laughs> so I'm, I was I was smoked on that one. <laughs> um, but I was also, you know, that's a, an interesting time because I was, you know, depending on what month of 84 we're talking about, I was 11, you know, 10 or 11, but I still like, you know, I loved music and I loved all sorts of music and growing up in LA, you had access to all of the music if you wanted it, because you had radio stations that covered everything, including K-Rock. If you grew up in LA, you had 
if you had more than five friends, you had you you had five different musical influences. Some would be the <laughs> some would be the metalheads, you know, or like you know you know hardcore hairband people and friends. And then you had the alternatives and the dark, what, what, what turned into you know like what maybe goths, but you know the Smiths and the Cure and Morrissey, which were darker, you know, English. And then you had Poppy, you know, Kiss FM and Power 106, which was all top 40 radio. And then like, and, and then you had all this other, and then you had the R&B station. I mean, they were just cranking out so much stuff then. And a <laughs> lot of times you got to go to events or whatever and meet these people or see them, you know, perform, which was pretty crazy. My first concert ever, that's always a question that everybody goes, like, what was your first concert ever? Mine was the Jackson Victory Tour. Mine was, this is so on brand for me. Uh, my first concert I ever went to was a Christian ska music festival called Ska Mania '98. Which, <laughs> oh my god! I, don't even know. I think that's a whole other podcast. Yeah, and then the second concert I went to was my dad took me to see George Thorogood and Steve Miller band. Well, there's some range. Let's before we dive into the the big final question, which is, are we going to give Rockwell the one hit thunder or the one hit blunder? Let's talk a little bit about Wolfman's Got Nards. The making, uh, not the making of, it's not a making of documentary. It's a fandom documentary about Monster Squad. So you've been working on this documentary for a couple of years. I, I'm apparently in it. Uh, I'm excited to finally see it. I pre-ordered my copy. From everything I've heard, from every review I've read, is just such a love story to to a fandom that just connect it with this film. This weird film that that bombed in the box office, but just found a whole new life on home video and, and on cable. Can you tell us a little bit? Of, can you tell me anyway, and the listeners will just have to come along for the ride uh, <laughs> a little bit about the what led to the moment where you're like, I think we need to make a documentary about this. Yeah, that's always the 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 interesting kind of moment or, or, or time period. And it was it really was a culmination of you know, going all the way back to spring of 2006, when we did the first cast reunion screening at the original Alamo Draft House in downtown Austin, they, f you know, got in contact with us. They said, we found a print. Uh, we want to fly you and some cast members in and, and do a reunion screening because Eric Vespi, who was writing at the time for Ain't It Cool News and now at Rooster Teeth and a bunch of other publications, uh, put it together along with, you know, the Alamo and flew myself, Ryan, Ashley Bank, and Fred Decker in, and we're like, you guys want to watch this movie? Like, this is crazy. Like, it's going to be a weird thing. But, you know, let's just go and see that. Anyway, we didn't know it was going to be literally a nuclear detonation, <laughs> you know, with fans and the internet. And, you know, less than a year later, Lionsgate's putting out a 20th anniversary DVD. And we're headlining conventions and we're going all over the place. The, that print that I ended up knowing and befriending the two guys that actually owned that print was the only print in North America that anybody could get their hands on. That thing was on rent for every weekend for like eight years after that. And Matt Panacci and Adam Hewlin own those two North Carolina guys. And I'm, I'm friends with them now. They're also in the doc because they got to tell the story about the print, right? It really was just, we thought after that event and we did a convention or two that we thought it would kind of die out and, and wither away again. And not only were we wrong, we were really wrong. <laughs> so the fandom, you know, the, the fan base just kept growing and getting more vocal and stronger. And that's why we kept going to these appearances. And I would, you know, fly to Denver or I'd fly to, you know, in New York or somewhere, you know, somewhere in North Carolina and do, you know, like an appearance, just a one-off thing screening. And the place would be packed, absolutely packed. And I was like, okay, that's interesting. And like I said, we thought it would wane away and, and, it, and it didn't 
it only got stronger. And then as you keep going to these appearances and you keep going to things like conventions and people are standing in line to take a photo with you or meet you for, you know, 90 seconds or five minutes, you know, wh whatever it ends up being. And you kept hearing these stories about how important this movie was to these people. And it was interesting and thoughtful, you know, for like the first couple of years, but it didn't die and it only got more and more stories. And the stories got extremely personal, extremely emotional, and they just kept rolling. And I was like, this is interesting because I'm looking at other fans of other movies and all these other great celebrities, of the, you know, whether it's a genre convention or a pop culture convention. And I'm like, I don't necessarily see the same connection with, you know, that group as this Monster Squad group. For some reason, this movie, whenever they saw it, some saw it in the theater, very few, as we know, uh, <laughs> or either saw it on HBO or their friend recorded it off HBO and took it around the neighborhood, or they kept going to the local video store so many times and they're like, you know what? Just take the damn tape. Like, quit coming in here. Like, just you own it now. <laughs> Go away. Or they'd steal it and their mom would get you know ripped for that sixty-two fifty licensing fee on, their, on her old MasterCard or something. And they just kept it and coveted it because this was their jam. And it, they kept telling me and, and, and Ryan and Ashley, and we, we combine all these stories of how it impacted them, how they connected with it and have not let go, and how a lot of times it actually changed or shaped their lives or who they are or how they went about their adolescence. And I was like, I don't know many other stories about this type of connection lasting this long, right? And I soon realized that those stories – were a story. You know, as we got near the 30th anniversary year, we knew it was kind of going to be an interesting, you know, because the 25th, we're like, oh, it's 25. Okay. Everybody's like, let's all go away and go into the sunset. It's going to be over. <laughs> and it wasn't again. And then 30th came around and this was sort of the time I was like, you know, I think there's something interesting here. You know, they've been celebrating us for 30 years. We didn't know about it for the first 19. It's the only reason this movie is still alive are these kids and, you know, these adolescents and these teenagers and these college kids that found this movie and it connected with them and it was their duty to share it with their best pals and then go out and create their own little groups that to, you know, to conquer the world with. And I was like, you know what? Those stories and these people are a story. And then it goes deeper of how you know, anything can kind of impact you. And, you know, like you mentioned before, this isn't a making of doc. It's not a, where are they now doc? I mean, who cares? <laughs> I'm right here. Yeah. You know, it's like, it, it's, and it's certainly also not, not to knock these other type of documentaries that have come out in the last, you know, five or six years, but it is not a straight fan service doc. They're fun. They're great. You get that little nostalgic itch and he goes, it was very important to me and Henry McComas, who, you know, who made the doc with me, you know, as the leader of the production team with uh, at Pilgrim Media Group. You know, we, we really concentrated on what the tone and theme and look and feel and heart of this would be. And we just kept getting even better stories and meeting better people on the road in that year that we shot the doc. We rolled cameras and premiered at our first festival with at, right at the 12-month mark. So I will say that this episode is going to be dropping on the 28th, which I'm pretty sure is the day that anybody can go and watch Wolfman's Got Nards, correct? They can't. It is the day after the official oh. release, but you'll have at least a 24-hour head start. 
And if anybody hears this on the 28th and then goes and watches Wolfman's Got Nards, please let me know via social or Matt, because that just means it's awesome and you guys are awesome. So uh, yeah, 27th (laughs) is the big VOD release. You can order it on iTunes. You can get it from your local VOD provider, your cable station, Dish Network, uh, you know, tell us Verizon, you know, wherever you are in US and Canada. This is just a US and Canada release right now. And if you want, if you're a physical collector, there's actually a Blu-ray and you can order that on Amazon. And uh, by, you know, by the 28th, there's probably a couple other places that'll have it, but, you know, just search for it. There's not too many other Wolfman's Got Nards documentaries, Blu-rays, search terms out there. <laughs> <laughs> and there's one last question we have to cover. It's the big, it's the name of the show. Bouncing back to Rockwell. Do we think Rockwell, somebody watching me, is it a one hit thunder, which means that it it came, it saw, it conquered, it brought all of the power. Rockwell should not be a one hit wonder. He should be a superstar that everybody knows. Or was it a one hit blunder? It probably shouldn't have been a hit at all. What was it even doing on the charts? Get that shit out of here. What say you? I'm going to split your first choice in half. I think (laughs) this is definitely on the merits of what it is, a one-hit thunder. But no, he should not have been a gigantic (laughs) icon. Yeah, I I think I'm right there with you. We'll split the first one in half. Because it's such a fun – I mean, look, it's a fun song. It's a great I love the time. It's it's a a formative time for me, and that's why it kind of hit me. I was like, oh, yeah, Rockwell – and, you know, it's it's funny because you're learning about, you know, horror movies and it's got tro- – like you walk through, it's the moving camera, you know, very style. And, you know, there's a Blackbird that I was like, oh, that's very Hitchcock. I was like, oh, they're <laughs> just doing a whole Hitchcock movie. So it's very visual. The, the song, even before the video came out, like it played a lot. Like it was on the rotation on the top 40, like at the same – I think like 317, 444. 531 and 650 like every day you know whatever they have those just cycles and it played a ton yeah i'm right there with you i having listened to a few of the other rockwell singles there's definitely a reason why there's only one song that he's known for but i mean this song is this is like there's a reason why this song is still playing every halloween you know over 20 i mean over 35 years since it was released yes and it's because it's just a great well-made song any other novel like i remember sending you a list of suggestions and it was a lot of novelty songs that kind of are just barely hanging on to cultural relevance right. anymore but but somebody's watching me is not one of those songs no it's it's it, you know like i said it, it's it's tough to pick something like my favorite any my favorite recorded anything of all time also happens to be a Halloween thing. Cause I've always loved Halloween, but my all time favorite thing ever recorded was a free promotional album that you got from Winchell's donuts. <laughs> and it was about how to safely trick or treat. It was like a PSA on a record, but it had like these three kids and a narrator and these sounds. And it was, it's called the spooky sounds of Halloween. And it had these three little kids and and this little kid named Teeny. And he's got a line. He goes, it looks like a pumpkin pie with his clothes on. (laughs) And it's the, it's the coolest thing. But what was rad about it is I think if you went and got a half a dozen donuts, you, or if you're a kid, you got the record free. The record was clear. Oh, and it was square. Oh, 
Like, I mean, obviously the, 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 the grooves were round, but the album was square and I had that thing for, I, I wish I still had, I may somewhere in a box in Dorothy's garage, but that's, that's the, that's the, yeah. the mom. I mean, honestly, that, the, that, the, the, so like, Halloween so, stuff is hard to find. Yeah. I was gonna say, what, what could we really say about they're coming to take me away? Aha uh-huh, for an hour. Like, <laughs> yeah, no, it's not. And you know, there's probably another handful of things if, you know, if, if you searched and, and did it, but it's all those campy sort of like. Oh, great. The Adams, the Adams family theme song, you know, it's over yeah. the monsters. You're like, those aren't what, those are th- title songs and theme, you know, they're not <laughs> things that ended up being one hit. You know, I, Rockwell, the timing, my age at that time, it, it was, it was just special and it was kind of cool. And I mean, look, 87 was a big year, <laughs> you know, for a lot of things, a lot of great movies, including Monster Squad, which bombed. And so that was kind of weird. But then we wouldn't be talking, if Monster Squad was a big hit in 87, we wouldn't be talking today about the documentary about a movie that bombed that these fans kept it alive for three decades. Exactly. It would have been some movie that did well and no one gives a shit about, like Mr. Mom. (laughs) (laughs) Andre, thank you so much for joining us. Guys, go and check out Wolfman's Got Nards. It's streaming at this point. Uh, well, not streaming. It's on VOD at this point. Uh, and the Blu-rays are available. I know that mine should be at my house by the time this episode drops. So do not miss out on watching this incredible documentary. Thank you again, Andre, for your time. Well, thank you. And I don't give spoilers, but Matt Kelly is in it for at least a second. <gasps> One hit thunder. Underneath me is Roller Coaster Smoke by Punchline, but since Chris isn't here, let's talk about myself. Producer Matt is the host of Horror Movie Night and produces One Hit Thunder as well as my favorite episode of. He also appears in The Wolfman's Got Nards, which is available on VOD right now. Let us know your thoughts on the show by emailing us at onehitthunderpodcast at gmail.com and make sure to rate, review, and subscribe to us on your favorite podcasting app. Tune in next week for another episode of One Hit Thunder. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. This is the story of Whitney Houston. This is the story of Kurt Cobain. Of George Michael, of Otis Redding, of Amy Winehouse, of Michael Hutchins, Bob Marley. This is the story of Prince. It's a new podcast series. About how they died, why they died. 
and while we're still talking about them so long after. It's like nothing you've ever heard before. It's storytelling. But it's more than that, because rock stars... They tell us how we feel. They change our mood. They change the clothes we wear, the people we hang out with. The way we remember things. It's them who give us those ludicrous moments, the ones where you're... Jumping around, singing your heart out, feeling understood. And it's those moments we'll help you remember the ones you're thinking about right now. That feeling. That feeling. It's coming soon from Crowd Network. Just search for Death of a Rockstar on your podcast app. And subscribe now.